Welcome to Brain and Events. We are delighted to be joined by Thad Metz for the second time. In our first episode, we discussed the meaning of life. And today we're going to be talking about African ethics. Thad is one of the great world experts on the topic. Would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. Well, the thought experiment involves a choice about whom to rescue from death, whose life to save. We imagine that you are on a ship traveling with your mother. And she's unfortunately fallen overboard off the ship at sea. Your mother, we imagine, is fairly old, not very productive, not working, not really helping even her family terribly much, is using quite a lot of society's healthcare resources. But in addition, it's not only she who has fallen off the ship, but a stranger has as well. And let's suppose that's a younger individual in his 40s or so and is a medical professional doing quite a lot of good for society. Suppose now that you have just one life preserver at hand and you're able to throw it to only one person. They're not close enough to both benefit from the life preserver. They're relatively far apart from each other. And it looks like both of them need a life preserver. We can expect that the one who doesn't receive the life preserver will drown while the one who does get it will be saved. So the moral question here is, what is the right thing to do? And presumably you should throw it to one of them as opposed to hold it and watch them both drown. Surely one of them should get it. But which one? My intuition is that you've got at least very strong reason to send it to your mother. In this particular case, at least as I've described the case so far, it would be appropriate for you to feel more guilt if you instead threw it to the stranger. Well, I think many people listening will have the same intuition. And then the question becomes, which kind of moral framework can make the best sense of this intuition. And one thing going for the African tradition, or at least a characteristically African approach to morality, is that I think it gives us a plausible, straightforward explanation of why it would be right to save your mother as opposed to the stranger. And I think by comparison, it's difficult for Western, at least the dominant Western moral theories, to give a comparably strong explanation. So if we look at the Western theories briefly, utilitarianism, I think pretty clearly, is going to prescribe that you throw the life preserver not to your mother, but rather to the medical doctor. Right? I've suggested that she doesn't have long to live. She's using more resources. Clearly the doctor is going to do more good for society. So if our principle is to do whatever maximally benefits society in the long run, you shouldn't save your mother. You should save the doctor. But I think it's also difficult for the Kantian to make sense, given the logic of the Kantian ethic of why we've got particularly strong moral reason to save mom. Well, for the Kantian, we are to treat rational nature or the capacity for autonomy or personhood with respect. And it looks like both mom and the doctor have that to an equal degree. They, and they're both entitled to respect. And so it looks like perhaps at best we are to flip a coin from a Kantian perspective about which person to save. Kantians are able to account for special obligations. But normally those have to be grounded in some kind of choice that you, the agent, have made. So in particular, if you had promised beforehand to save your mother, that would give you a Kantian kind of reason to go out of your way to save her. But I presume you didn't promise mom before going on the ship to do whatever would save her life. And probably you never made such a promise in your life to mom. It's not written down anywhere. There was no conversation where you said, I promise to, to do all I can to save your life if I have to choose between you and a stranger. So I think utilitarians and Kantians are going to want to say that we've got most reason to save mom. But I think given the logic of their principles, it's very difficult for them to to give us that answer.
In contrast, from a common from a common interpretation of the African moral tradition, we get a pretty good and straightforward answer about why we've got the most reason to save mum. Often African morality, particularly the southern and central part of sub-Saharan region, is summed up with the phrase a person is a person through other persons. And in plain English, that doesn't say very much, but implicit in there is a prescription to develop our personhood, to become genuine persons, or to live a genuinely human way of life, which is called Ubuntu, often in Southern Africa. And the way to do that is through honoring certain kinds of harmonious or communal relations with other persons. And I think it's part of the logic of this thing to say that, yes, there's reason to relate communally or harmoniously with everybody, or at least with all innocent parties. But if you've had a particularly long-standing and intense relationship with a person, you've got extra moral reason to go out of your way for that person. That's the logic of a focus on cohesion or fellowship, which is very prominent in African philosophical thought. And I think that's a good explanation of why you might have more moral reason to save mum in this case. It's got to be the fact of your long-standing and intense relationship. And we can say more about the nature of the kind of relationship that would generate this obligation, but that's a big picture of one thing that I think the African moral tradition has going for it relative to modern Western moral principle. So I'd like to try out two defenses for the utilitarian because I'm sitting in this utilitarian corner over here. And the one is biting the bullet. So on the utilitarian position, it's wrong to save mom because she has low utility value than the doctor. But maybe that is just the moral choice. So maybe it just is wrong to save mom. And if you were to save mom, you'd be doing something quite selfish. So you'd be depriving the world of this doctor. Let's just presume all these facts at the time, right? So as the doctor falls over, he's got like a doctor badge on him and a utility value on his chest and your mom's utility value, it's low. It just, it does seem like if you have all these facts at hand, that it's fairly selfish to save your mom instead. So I'm biting the bullet there. Okay, let's start with the first objection, then I'll get to the second one afterwards. Look, there are some classic utilitarians who do bite the bullet. And if I remember right, William Godwin is one who has a similar kind of case about whom to rescue in a fire. And he is willing to bite the bullet and say, isn't necessarily a family member. It's not crazy to take that perspective. But I guess one thing I'd want to ask is whether it's actually your intuition, Jason, that you are morally required to save the stranger in this case. So we can say all sorts of things in reply, but part of the force of the case is, well, what do you really believe? And so one thing I would ask is whether you really believe that we shouldn't save mom. The second thing I would say is we can change the case to avoid the appearance of selfishness. So suppose you don't particularly get along with your mother. You don't really like her company. Your life would frankly be easier if she were out of the picture. <laughs> Still, many of us would have the intuition that we should save mom. And so it isn't really our self-interest that's motivating the intuition. It's something else, I think, probably the relationship. And the third thing I want to say is that I think chances are you would feel more guilty if you failed to save mom, or at least many listeners would feel more guilty. And on the face of it, appropriately so. On the face of it, there's little reason to question that natural reaction that many of us would have. So I think a feeling strong guilt, having the intuition that she ought to be saved, and then not being motivated by selfish considerations gives us reason to think there's something more doing the work. So I wonder whether there's not just two different values here. So 
the moral value asks us to purely determine from the utilitarian perspective what the outcomes are. And so the utilitarian gives the right answer on the moral value, but perhaps mm -hmm. there's some other value, which is love or relationships or relationality. Um, and on there, it seems clear that if you're going to value relationality, you're going to have to save mom, even if you don't particularly like her. And even if you fight often and she makes your life miserable. Now, what's interesting about the African ethic view about Ubuntu is that it's saying the two are equivalent, if I understand correctly. It's saying that if you want to know what the moral thing is, look at the relational thing. But why draw that equivalence? Why not separate them out and say, we have two values at play here and they compete and you can feel it in that case. The reason why I feel like they're distinct values is you can imagine yourself if you had time in the situation to ponder, it seems like you would feel these two opposing forces pulling. So you would feel, this is my mother. I have related to her in a very intimate way my entire life. That value is pulling me to save her. Then at the same time, there's a purely impartial decision to be made about who is going to lead to, to further good in society. And the doctor's going to do that. And so I should save the doctor. I mean, we were assuming doctors are good people from a utility perspective generally, but just assuming that it seems like that would pull in the opposite direction. But if you're going to equate the two, then you can't make sense of those two pulls. That seems to be a deficiency in the Ubuntu ethic is that you can't make sense of these pulls in opposite directions. Okay. So I think you're right. There are two considerations, but it's not bad questions about how to describe them. But, but yes, there's something about mom and there is something about the other person. It's not like the doctor tones for nothing. We've got to give pause and there's something worth weighing up there. So that sounds right to me. One explanation of there being those two poles would be a moral consideration on the one hand, which we identify with impartiality. And then something non-moral, but not immoral, just not having to do with morality, mainly love for beneficent relationships. I've got two responses to that kind of move. One is to say, again, to return to that issue of guilt. So if the relational stuff were non-moral, then we wouldn't feel so guilty if we failed to save mom. And the guilt is a good indicator, at least prima facie, when we've got something in the moral domain. I think shame is different. I think if we appropriately feel shame, it's sometimes about having done something wrong, but not necessarily. Guilt is a much better, attracts moral judgment more closely than does shame. And it really does look like guilt that we would feel if we didn't save well. So that's one reason for thinking that the partial considerations or the relational considerations are not our moral. But the second thing to say is that I believe that an African ethic plausibly interpreted can make sense of the two poles, right? So I do think broadly speaking, the African tradition prizes cohesion or community or harmonious relationship, but that's often done at two levels. So on the one hand, the thought is those with whom I've been in the appropriate relation are owed extra attention. And that would be mom in this case. But another idea that's also salient in the African tradition is that everybody has a dignity and that all individuals have a superlative inner worth. And there's debate within the tradition about what it is that gives us that worth, but it is a common part of the African tradition. On my interpretation, what gives us that dignity is the fact we are capable of relating communally. So we've each got the capacity to relate harmoniously and to be harmonized with, 
And so on my interpretation, the African tradition, we've all got that. The doctor has it, mama has it. And so there is this kind of impartial dimension to any plausible interpretation of the African tradition. And the thought would have, would be, we've got two moral considerations here. We've got an impartial one and a partial one in this case, where we don't need to do any harm to another in order to benefit our loved one. We should save the loved one. So I've got a couple of thoughts. The first is, I think when Jason says that there's these competing values, some of which are moral, some of which are non-moral, it seems that might be a problem for utilitarianism as well. In other words, one way to understand the utilitarian account is that it gives you a grand moral theory for everything. And if it says, well, some stuff's moral and some stuff seems to have an action guiding this but is non-moral, that seems like a deficit. The other one is that the Kantian could say, the reason why you save your mother is not because you're biologically related, but because she deserves to be saved because she raised you, she brought you into existence. She's done things that merit special consideration. You might think that even if there's no explicit promise, that they're tacit, that if you had to ask, you wouldn't even need to make a promise because your mother would expect it and you would expect it of your mother. So you can kind of get there through that account. And then I want to put pressure on your account, which is your position is what we should care about is harmony and people's capacity to interact harmoniously. And I wonder how the African account does with people who do disharmonious things, but that other moral theories would say, you ought to be free to do that. You ought to be free to dissent. It should be okay to upset others. And the harmonious account might say, you should suppress that because there's a problem with the harmony. Okay. So for the Kantian, I've got to, I'm going to let Jason do the work of defending utilitarianism on his own. Doesn't need my help. But for the Kantian, I think, I mean, there are two concepts at play in the response. On the one hand, there was the idea of having tacitly promised. And on the other hand, there was the thought of dessert. I don't think the idea of dessert will get far because we can just imagine that the stranger is equally deserving. So the stranger, not deserving, particularly in respect of you, but deserving. Right. So normally when we think about dessert, it isn't sort of agent relative in some way. It's you've been a good person, for example, or you've worked hard and contributed to society. Those are normal dessert Macy's. And we can imagine that, that both, both individuals exemplify that feature to a comparable degree, but we still find more reason to save money. But the second idea about the tacit promise, I think it's a slippery idea. So our clearest understanding of when we've tacitly agreed to something is when there's a convention in place such that I don't need to explicitly say the words, I consent to this or I agree to this. There's some other indication of the agreement. So sometimes in a committee, a firm, for example, it will be said, if nobody speaks up, we will take that as a sign of consent. Now we know what the convention is. And if we don't speak up, well, we have thereby agreed, even though we haven't said the words, we agree. That's the clearest understanding of a tacit agreement. And I presume, again, that was missing with mum. We didn't have a convention whereby if I didn't say something or if I did some other nonverbal or non-linguistic thing, I would thereby have agreed to rescue her in these kinds of situations. So if you've got a broader notion of tacit agreement than that, then I need to hear about it. And there needs to be some motivation for thinking that it's an unlegitimate moral category. As for the problems with appealing to harmony, a, a lot depends on precisely what's meant by harmony. And part of what I've tried to do in my work, one contribution I take some pride in having made to African philosophy is to try to be fairly concrete 
about the appropriate way to relate to others in a morally right way. Sometimes I call it harmony. Sometimes I call it relating communally. It doesn't really matter. But the thought is that it's not simply the avoidance of conflict or it's not simply doing what's going to please people. So more carefully on my view, when we relate harmoniously, we are thereby, at least in the most complete sense, sharing a way of life with others on the one hand and caring for their quality of life. So on the one hand, to share a way of life is to enjoy a sense of togetherness, but above all, to participate and participate on a cooperative basis. On the other hand, caring for others' quality of life is meeting their needs, doing what's objectively good for them, including fostering their virtue and doing so for their own sake, not for your long-term self-interest, for example. So I think you've got a harmonious relationship when you've got those two things together. And when you've got those two things together, then we get a plausible description of what's attractive about a friendly relationship or even a broad sense of love. So people who are friendly to each other or in a love each other, again, in a broad sense, they share a sense of self, they engage in joint projects, they help one another, they do what's objectively good for one another, and they do so for one another's sake. That might not be all we value in a loving or friendly relationship, but that's a large part of it, I think. But I think that's really the heart of the African tradition, insofar as it's relational, is this notion of identity and solidarity, or sharing a way of life and caring for others' quality of life. And I think it's quite possible to have your own point of view or ruffle feathers, but still participate on a cooperative basis and do what's going to meet other people's needs, very roughly speaking. So there might be other problems, other respects in which this ethic is going to forbid uh, disharmonious or discordant types of behavior, but those two, on the face of it, I don't think are problems. So a couple of responses. The one is it seems that there's a tension between the actual relationships that you have and the actual way of life that you share with members of your community. And then this Kantianized version of it, where you say, well, other people have the capacity for doing that in their own particular ways, and therefore I owe them obligations, even if they fall outside of my particular community. And it seems like those are just very different theoretical accounts. And I wonder how they would coexist when you have clashes. So it seems to be the case that not all disputes will result in harmony. Sometimes there's a winner and sometimes there's a loser. Sometimes there's a way in which you want to be that is to the detriment of someone else. And that might be in terms of the rituals that you engage in, the kinds of lifestyle choice that you make. You can imagine the marital relationship, the partners have to kind of decide what you're going to do in this relationship. There's going to be various trade-offs, not necessarily moral trade-offs, but you know you have to do it. And sometimes cultures say we can't really coexist with each other because our values are so different from each other. So I wonder what the borders are of these communities, whether it is really, and it's one global community trying to act harmoniously under some kind of pluralistic value set, or whether it's a subset of different communities that maybe overlap with each other. How do you cash that out and how do you cash out the tensions between them? I think two things. So you started off suggesting that there's the difference between an actual community, actual sharing and caring as it were, and the mere capacity for it on the other. And for me, what I like about my interpretation of African ethics is that it gives us a common ground for those. It says what they've got in common is this notion of harmony or this notion of community. On the one hand, there's the capacity for it, and that's sort of morally fundamental as it were. 
But when it's actualized, then in order to treat people with the appropriate respect, we have to give extra consideration because it's a deontological theory and we need to honor this value. We need to respect it. We're not maximizing the production of harmonious relationships. And so where it's been actualized, that gives us extra reason to protect it and enrich it. And so go to go out of our way for members of that relationship. But I think we actually get a neat theoretical way of unifying these two aspects of our moral thought from this perspective. I don't have a general account of how to resolve clashes between them. I mean, I've got some rough and ready principles. So for example, if in order to benefit somebody who's party to a relationship with me, that would involve imposing a serious harm on somebody else, an innocent person, I ought not do that. I ought not help keep some by harming others. I think that's subjectionably degrading of those who have the capacity to. But if I can help those in relationship with me, without harming anybody in the process, then on the face of it, there's strong reason for me to do so. Now, those are mid-level principles. They're rough. We're going to find exceptions, but they do something. They're probably not going to be enough to answer your kinds of cases. And in some ways, I want some more specificity in order to be able to know what to do. So, I mean, if I go to a couple, and I do think in some ways, this kind of ethical view grew out of small-scale societies, admittedly. It grew out of families or societies based on the extended family. And so I think appealing to those, that kind of context is welcome to test our intuitions and things. So I think of a marriage or a romantic relationship and for that couple to relate harmoniously in my sense, they need not have the same interests or even the same values, right? Again, at the core of it is we've got to participate with each other on a cooperative basis and we've got to do what we can, go out of our way for one another's interests. So if she wants pizza, I give her pizza. If I want sushi, she goes out of her way to give me sushi. We try to adjust to give one another not merely what we want. I can't quite say that given my ethic, but what's good for us. Why isn't it as simple as that? So Thad, I want to push you on your original case. So suppose you've loaded up that your mom in this case is not producing any real positive utility, and the doctor's producing lots of positive utility, but suppose we adjust the case so that your mom's really bad. So one of my favorite series on Netflix at the moment is called Dharma, and it's about Jeffrey Dharma. Mm -hmm. And one of the great characters in the series is his father. And his father gets the sense that his son is up to no good. He doesn't know how much no good it is, but he gets the sense. And you see him wrestling sometimes with his conscience. He helps him get his charges reduced when he's convicted of smaller crimes. The courts don't know that Jeffrey is committing murder yet. And he starts to wonder whether getting him out of jail and getting him just on community service charges instead of real hard time is actually good for society at large. So suppose it's Jeffrey Dahmer's father on the ship. And suppose it's not your mother that you're going to save, but it's Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, you, the question is, should we save Jeffrey Dahmer or the doctor? And I wonder whether your view says we have to save Jeffrey Dahmer. Now, just to preempt a possible response, by the way, I take it that would be highly counterintuitive. So I take it that the moral choice is not to save Jeffrey Dahmer. The moral choice is to save the doctor. I'm just going to assume that. Now, you might say the reason why it's wrong to save Jeffrey Dahmer is because Jeff is undermining cohesion in society. 
So Jeff is undermining the relational capacity of those who he murders. So I'm going to preempt that response by saying, imagine he only murders hermits. Okay, so he only murders people who have no intention whatsoever of relating to others. They hate society. They're misandrists. They don't want anything to do with humanity. They've made staunch vows. They've vowed never to relate to other people. Yeah. Okay. So now the utilitarian says you shouldn't save Jeffrey Dahmer because he's going to go out and murder people. And that's bad. And those people, there's going to be negative consequences. Right. And I don't think you can, I don't think you can account for that. I can because of the category of dignity. So again, part of my interpretation of the tradition is to run with the common idea that you'll find amongst African philosophers and for all I can tell, indigenous sub-Saharan societies, that each individual has a dignity. Again, different accounts of what gives us the dignity. On my account, it's the capacity to relate. So it doesn't mean that the capacity has been actualized, is being actualized, or will be actualized. So I can say of those that Dahmer would kill if he were saved, that even though they wouldn't be relating to others in society, they would still have a dignity by virtue of their inherent ability to so relate. And so it's therefore would be wrong for Dahmer to kill them. And it's therefore incumbent on me to give that some consideration. But I want to say two more things, if I may, about, about the tweak of the case. Often we say, or a number of us think that when it comes to friends, we've got some reason to stand up for them, even when they're wrong. There's something right about that, something right about it. But what the case you've shown, what case you've articulated shows that there's a limit, right? It's not just any old wrongdoing for which when we ignore, we let slide. It's wrong as to a certain degree. And I think a relational ethic makes good sense of why we might have reason to stand up for a friend, even when they're wrong, but not wrong on the scale of serial murder. The second thing I want to say is that if the burden placed on Dahmer wasn't, suppose it were punishment, right? Then it would be open for my account to say one more thing of interest, which is that it would actually be good for Dahmer to be punished and to be restrained from murdering people. Part of his good, objectively construed, is his virtue, is his good character. And so he, if he himself is inclined to act in ways that are discordant, the opposite of sharing and caring, then I'd be actually relating to him harmoniously if I saw him punished, at least in a way that promised some rehabilitation. I want to respond to the first response. So suppose the people he kills are people without the capacity to relate. So suppose you've removed that part of their brains but they're perfectly capable of suffering and enjoying life. So, so they're hermits without the capacity to relate. They just love their lives. They're just lovely people. They just go about their lives. They create art in the mornings. They live very meaningful lives, it seems, minus relations with others. If you think that's possible to have meaningful life without any relations. They just seem very sweet, very nice people. They don't cause any harm in the world. They just create lovely art all day. And maybe they help animals around them. I'm not sure if animals are included in the relationality here. Then it seems like killing him doesn't stop anything bad from happening on okay. if relations are what matter. So, nope, I got more up my sleeve. It's true by my account that individual will lack a dignity. I'm committed to that by virtue of what I accept confers a dignity. If there's an individual who's rational but utterly lacks other regard, right, doesn't even have the concept of another mind, for example, that individual is not going to have a dignity by this account. That is true. But there's still a sense in which that individual will have the capacity to relate. 
So there are two ways, two relevant forms the capacity can take. On the one hand, you can have the ability to relate as a subject, and that's the sense you were thinking of, where you would be the one harmonizing. You would be the one identifying with others and going out of your way to meet their needs. But on the other hand, another way to have the capacity to relate harmoniously is to be harmonized with, to be the kind of being that can be cared for or the kind of being that can be identified with. And the natural category there is to think of animals, right? So I think many animals, for all I know, I mean, there's debate about whether any animals can be subjects of communal relationship as I've defined it. It's debate about whether chimpanzees, for example, or dolphins or elephants have the concept of other minds. If they do, it's rudimentary. Um, but if they've got it, it would be a good explanation, by the way, of why they count as the highest members of the animal kingdom, right? They're approximating this kind of social capacity that we have in much more complex and intense ways. But setting that aside, we can clearly relate harmoniously with animals. We can enjoy a sense of togetherness with them. We can help them with their goals. We can do what's objectively good for them. We can sympathize with them and we can do so. We can help them for their sake. And so by my account, that gives them a moral status, even if not a dignity. And so that's roughly where I would place the kind of individual you are describing. I'd want to say that individual lacks a dignity since he isn't able to be the subject of a communal relationship, but he can still be an object of one. We can still treat him harmoniously. And so he's got a moral status. And so if Dahmer were to kill him, it would be wrong on Dahmer's part. And if I ignored that, it would be wrong on my part. So I wonder if the theory can stand on its own or if it requires reference to other moral principles. So you mentioned, for example, that there's a for harm principle at play, so that it's not okay to harm someone to the benefit of someone you're in a communal relationship with. And it's only in the case where you're picking between doing some positive action. It also seems that you're going to rely on a modified account of dignity. So if the Kantians say it comes from personal autonomy, you're going to say, well, it comes from your ability to relate to others. But it starts to look quite similar once you bring in these, let's say, moral patient style cases. So I'm wondering, where are the situations where your account starts to generate very different results from the traditional Western accounts? And in ways in which you think that would be superior, or in ways in which it challenges our intuitions, but you think we should still pick it overall, that it's still better than the other theories? Look, I think the case I started off with is one of those, right? Do you think if our dignity inheres in our relationality, our capacity to relate in certain ways, and if we're to honor that relationship or the individual insofar as she's capable of relating in that way, then we get some kind of a natural explanation of partiality of special obligations that aren't voluntarily incurred. So I think that's one strong sort of case, but let me give you another. Consider, consider euthanasia. Many of us have the intuition that if a person has a terminal illness, the person would be living in great pain for the rest of her life, and the person wants to die, then under those kinds of conditions, it can be permissible for a medical professional, such as a doctor, to do what's foreseeably going to result in the death of the patient. But that is a fairly narrow range of of conditions. Now, I think the African ethics that I've put forward does a good job of capturing those conditions and better than utilitarianism or Kantianism. So utilitarianism will say on the face of it that it's permissible to kill that individual regardless of whether the individual has consented to the killing or not. 
right? If the rest of her life is going to be in great pain and it's going to be just bad, hedonically speaking, then the best thing for her and for society would be her death. And there's no moral importance ascribed to her consenting to be killed for the utilitarian. That doesn't have any moral weight in itself at all. In contrast, for the Kantian, consent matters, but I think it proves too much, as it were. So the Kantian can make good sense of the idea that we want consent from a person before we kill her. But for the Kantian, there's really nothing morally in itself important about the fact that the person's in great pain or going to have a very poor quality of life for the rest of her existence. And if anything, by a logic of autonomy, a doctor should be morally allowed to kill anybody who just freely wants to die for whatever reason. If the person makes a free and informed decision to, to be killed by the doctor, it doesn't look like there's any disrespect of the capacity for autonomy or rationality. In contrast, if what's important about us is our ability to relate harmoniously, and that capacity roughly involves participating cooperatively and doing what's objectively good for others, then we get a natural explanation of why euthanasia should be limited to those conditions where we've got consent on the one hand and the rest of the person's life is going to be awful on the other, right? To relate harmoniously would mean cooperating, getting consent from the person on the one hand, and it would also involve doing what's actually good for the person. That is, we suppose, preventing a fate worse than death, right? Which would have to be done by killing, with, with supposing there's no other way to avoid the pain. So when we get these two values, these two parts of harmony, of both caring and sharing, I think it does nice work in giving us a good explanation of why euthanasia is justified in the range of cases it intuitively is. Utility and autonomy seem to justify too much killing. So I wonder if you see things as a series of hurdles that have to be passed in your theory, or how the different principles interact with each other. So we can imagine a situation where we say, look, it's clearly good for you to be mercy killed. You're a disharmonious influence as well. I mean, we when you're in the village and you're wailing and screaming and, you know, you. but whenever we ask you, please, will you let us kill you? You refuse. And it's very painful for the rest of us to watch you go through this. We think that you're imposing your pain on the rest of us. So the good for you and for the rest of us would be the mercy kill. But if you say, no, you have to obtain the consent. That's a requirement. That's the first hurdle you have to go over. Then start to wonder when you've got all these principles at play, do we balance them against each other? Are they a series that have to be jumped over? And once you've hit all of them, then you can do the action. Is it a little bit like Parfit's account of morality that you can understand the three main contenders, including contractarianism, in terms of each other, and that you create this series of hurdles and it sort of limits action? Or is there something different going on? I think there's one basic principle, but that out of that principle falls a number of different, which you might call prima facie duties or pro tanto moral reasons. So I think there's one basic moral principle, which is respect individuals insofar as they are capable of relating communally and whether that's as subjects or objects, that's the summary of the view. But what it means to do that is going to mean on the one hand, giving some kind of partial duties relative and not merely the existence of impartial duties. It might mean paying attention to whether the individual has been discordant or not. So I think there's a difference between the way we should treat parties who are innocent on the one hand and those who are aggressors or guilty of having aggressed on the other. That's another cluster of principles that are going to fall out of the basic principle. I'm also open to the idea of interpreting this ethic as entailing not merely duties to others, but also duties to oneself. Sympathetic to the idea that it might be possible if we do some 
fancy footwork to relate harmoniously to ourselves or perhaps our future selves in some way. And we too have a dignity that merits respect. And so that we get these different distinctions. We get partial, impartial, guilt, innocence, self, other, person, animal. The thought is that morality is complex, um, but we can appeal to some notion of a dignity-based or at least a deontological structure of the ethic to ultimately ground and see how they, they might have a common foundation. So that's the big picture. I think uh, going back to your case, I don't think simply going around wailing counts as discordant, right? It's, so the clearest case of discordance is going to be instead of coordinating your behaviors, you're subordinating. So you are coercing, you are oppressing, physically forcing, you are tricking, you're using fraud or deception, or you are exploiting. It's that category of concepts that's going to be the clearest cases of failing to share a way of life or flouting that value. And then when it comes to harming people, I mean, simply annoying them or being loud, I guess that's a kind of lowering of quality of life, but eh, it doesn't count so much relative to what the African tradition really cares about, which is whether people's needs are being met. And in particular, their need to be a social communal beings of their virtue, whether their character is still intact. So in the sort of case uh, you gave us, we don't have a clear case of discord as I would interpret it. So I've got two questions. So the one is, why is harmony so important? I take it that on the utilitarian perspective, when I say to someone, it's good when you feel pleasure and it's bad when you suffer, that's quite intuitive, right? You don't have to ask the further question, well, why is it good? And it feels like in the case of harmony, I can ask the question without it not making sense, that the question itself does seem legitimate and that undermines the notion that harmony is an intrinsic good. And if that is the case, then Mark's objection gains strength. The idea that actually, there's nothing here that's distinct from these subordinate values that you're cashing out harmony in terms of or dignity in terms of. Those are the values that are playing the role. It's not the harmony. So that's my first question. And then I'll get to my second once you've answered. Okay. So I've got two things to say off the top of my head. One is to return to the idea that the way I interpreted harmony was in a way that captures much of what's attractive about a friendly or loving relationship. So it is natural, I think, to say that friendship or love matter for their own sake or have intrinsic value or are good, not merely as a means, have final value, whatever phrase you want to use. These are good candidates. It's true there are battles between objectivists and utilitarian welfareists about what is ultimately good for its own sake. But we've got a plausible contender if we remember that harmony and community actually is a way of relating. And it's a kind of relating that we find familiar and, and that many of us prize in life. So that's one thing to say. The second thing to say is to think of a different kind of thought experiment, actually returning to, but using for a different purpose, the kind of case that Jason gave us earlier. We have an individual who's rational, but utterly lacks the capacity for other regard, right? So doesn't even have the concept of another mind and so is unable to enjoy a sense of togetherness, is unable to cooperate for the sake of another person's ends, cannot go out of his way to help someone else because he doesn't have the concept of a someone else, really is extraordinarily limited. That person might have other features that would give him a moral status and 
would entitle him to certain kinds of moral treatment. But I balk at the idea that individual would have a dignity. Or at the very least, if I had to choose between rescuing two strangers, one of whom was quote-unquote normal and able to be a subject of communal relationship, and this individual, if I had to choose between saving one of them, I would save this, the normal one, and I would let the other die if I couldn't save both. So if you share the intuitions about the value of love, and if you would do something similar in the thought experiment, then we start having reason to think that the capacity for this way of relating is something important and morally important. Okay, I can find that plausible. So I was just wondering in the context of philosophy, so us having this conversation, maybe it doesn't amount to discord. I mean, anyone listening to this who's not a philosopher might be perturbed by the fact that we argue a lot, right? So we're constantly giving objections to each other and responding. We don't agree on things. Now, you mm. might not say it's not discord, okay, but it's certainly not an exemplary example of harmony, right? So I wonder on this view whether Maybe philosophy is not relegated to highly immoral, but it's, it certainly doesn't help. I disagree. Again, it's, harmony is a, roughly a matter of enjoying a sense of togetherness, cooperating, doing what's good for one another, and doing it for one another's sake. Aren't we doing that right now? <laughs> We're doing what's good for each other, sharing ideas. I think this is a perfect illustration of harmony actually, if it's properly, if it's defined properly and well understood. So we're very friendly, right? But you can imagine that at certain times in intellectual history, that intellectual progress has occurred through people being quite combative. And perhaps a person's dignity is at stake in that combat. But through that fight, general intellectual progress is made for society as a whole. So there's examples in the history of philosophy, where philosophers will go at each other in a journal, perhaps for years. I mean, Maybe this doesn't happen as much today as it did in the past because life is different today. But back then, the only way of communicating ideas in an academic context was for people to fight through journals. And sometimes philosophers would do this. And one of their dignity might suffer, but as a whole, the enterprise was furthered. Yeah, I'd need more information about the details. But on the face of it, if there was degradation, insults. That's to be avoided. That was wrong. And the mere fact that good consequences resulted from it, I'm quite happy to bite the bullet and say that those consequences should have been produced in some other way. And furthermore, intellectual progress in itself, it doesn't look like that's going to matter from this moral perspective very much. It's not going to have a lot of weight. Again, it might depend on what's, what the knowledge is about, but simply intellectual progress as such is going to have a lower value than our ability to relate communally. And if that capacity is degraded by insults and denigration, that's unjustified. So I wonder about if there's a floating level of harmony that can play a role to make your account look more intuitive or less intuitive. So for example, we can say we're all engaged in the project of philosophy and one mechanism we use is this combative style or competition. You can imagine athletes who say we're all part of a particular culture together and the way that we express this project is through staunch competition against each other. And so you have harmony at the abstract level, but staunch competition at the lower level. I, in other words, if you just slide the scale up and down, you can always get to the right answer. And that maybe that the problem is that we want to fix you down to what level of harmony are you talking about? Because it seems that at certain levels, 
all we're seeing is people who fiercely competing with each other are not interested in harmony, but on the abstract level, it counts. And the other one is I wonder about harmony of lifestyle. So we're all part of this sort of set of communal values. So you can imagine a religious community that says, look, to participate harmoniously in this community means devotion to the cause. It means believing in our God, performing our rituals. And that if you don't do that, or you mock it, you are doing something disharmonious. The classical liberal is going to say, no, well, you can swing your fist at the edge of my nose and no further, and you shouldn't subjugate people, and you shouldn't force them to become part of your tradition. If someone wants to have a lifestyle that's different from yours, you should allow it. You can imagine a culture that says, look, we strongly disapprove of homosexual relationships or people who have more than one spouse. We find those things repugnant to our values. It causes discord in our community. Or you say, well, look, as long as you're not, they're not subjugating anyone, they're acting harmoniously, and so you slide the harmony scale back up and that stuff gets protected. These are good cases, Mark, and I should think about them more carefully than I'm going to be able to do at the moment. But I think there's something right about the idea that competitive sports is still at a certain level an instance of community. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. There is an overarching framework. There are shared ends. It's a joint project. There isn't coercion. There isn't deception. There isn't exploitation which are the quintessential forms of discord as I understand it. So there might be certain kinds of emotions. There might well be anger or hostility on the football field. And those on the face of it, I think that might well count as discordant. But I would need to say more. I mean, so I do think anger in response to anger is justified, for example. I think violence and self-defense is justified. So I don't want to say we always have to be peaceful. And this isn't a pacifist ethic. It's meant, in fact, to give us an explanation of why it can be justified in using force against others. Roughly, when they have been discordant, and the clearest case is when being discordant back is the only way to get them to stop or to compensate their victims. So I think the logic of the theory can justify violence and intense forms of discord. And so I need to know a little bit more of the details about the football field. But again, it doesn't look to me like a quintessential case of discord because it doesn't involve subordination. It's been a free decision to participate in this. The other case is tougher. And I think there are two cases that I distinguish in your remarks. On the one hand, we've got the case where you mock a certain way of life. And on the other case, we've, we've got the homosexuality. I do think, I do, I think I'm probably committed to the view that there's something immoral about mocking other people's cultures, supposing there's nothing wrong with the cultures, right? Again, I want to say discord can be justified in response to discord. And for imagining a, a culture that isn't discordant, it's not doing anything immoral. Then there would be something wrong with insulting people because of their culture or mocking their way of life. You shouldn't do it. Now, it's a further question of what the response to that should be. And it would, it's not clear that I am then committed to thinking that you should be punished for doing it. And in particular, if there's a way to get you to stop doing it without punishment, that's the preferred route, probably, by my ethic. But I'm happy to say, no, don't go around mocking people's cultures, <laughs> at least if the cultures don't deserve it. I don't think that's crazy. The gay lifestyle is trickier for me, because I am committed to saying something like, what's special about us is our ability to relate by sharing a way of life and caring for others' quality of life. Where you've got existing communities, right? you've got existing lifestyles that deserve some respect. And now if the dominant lifestyle is one of heterosexuality and we have people who 
want to have gay lifestyles, it looks like they're flouting the shared way of life. And that, that does look like a problem for my view. And I will give up the view if I'm stuck with that problem. That would be a serious counterexample to the view. I think a couple things though, that I can say, one is that it's not just any lifestyle that's going to merit respect. It's going to be one that has been freely chosen. Right. So it's not just shared way of life in the sense of here's the way of life. It's got to be shared in the sense of picked. People have to be freely party to it for it to deserve our respect. If a gay person hasn't wanted to freely participate in a heterosexual way of life, well, then it isn't one thing to consider saying is it doesn't count. It's just not part of the relevant lifestyle that merits protection. The second thing to say is if I'm not entitled to that kind of move, what I can say is to draw that distinction earlier between different objects of duties. So I can have duty to myself on the one hand, I might owe a duty to my society on the other, and I might have a partial obligation to my beloved and even granted, I would have a duty to the rest of society of some weight not to engage in homosexual activity. I would have still duties to myself and duties to my lover to participate in those kinds of relationships. And presumably those are going to be stronger. I'm not entirely happy with that because I still need to say that there's something pro tanto wrong with homosexuality in that scenario. I don't like, I don't like, I don't like that, <laughs> but I do think I'm able to end up with the correct answer at the end of the day. So I want to take that objection and make it a little bit more abstract. So I'm sitting at the dinner table on a Friday night with my family. It's a Shabbos dinner and their friends are over and extended family are over and it's very harmonious, but it's a little nauseating. So it's like, there's just this nauseating level of harmony. And I think Mark will have sympathy for this. I like to just insert just a barb. It's just like, I'll ask a question. I'll ask a question. So why does everyone think that Shabbos matters? Or just, I'll just insert a question, which ultimately will cause lots of strife in the dinner. People will fight over it. Not always good naturedly. And I think that something good has happened when I make that comment. I think that there is value in it. So I'm trying to get at the idea that harmony can be nauseating sometimes, that it's a bit gross. It's like it's kumbayai and no progress is made through it. I mean, I can imagine progress being made in harmonious societies. I'm not saying that can't happen, but it does seem that sometimes intellectual progress, relational progress, even that in a relationship, in order for the relationship to grow, you need to insert some disharmony. I mean, maybe I've given you the solution to this problem now by saying that, because you're going to say that disharmony ultimately produces more harmony at the end. But it does seem like the disharmony can be valuable in and of itself. And I don't think you, your view must deny that. My view has to deny that. There's not going to be anything morally right with disharmony in itself, unless it's a response to disharmony, right? Unless it's serving some kind of protected function, which we're not imagining in this case. Look, I can certainly accept the idea that getting people to reflect on controversial questions is good for them, right? But for me, that counts as harmony, <laughs> right? So the way I would describe it is you're actually fostering harmony, at least in some respect, if you're prompting reflection, you're not going to be fostering harmony if you are getting fights that aren't good nature. And what we probably have to consider is whether we could have gotten the outcome in another way. I mean, that would be the first question. Could we have gotten the reflection without the elves' temper? Wouldn't that have been preferable, I would say, back? And you say no, that wouldn't be preferable? 
Well, let's take the example further outside of the dinner table. So it's now society as a whole. So one approach to the way to develop society, both morally, socially, and in other ways, uh, and I think Mark favors this view and I do as well, is the battle of ideas. So you've got these warring camps, which really, I mean, the battle of ideas can be quite violent. And one side can win this battle of ideas on any given issue and one side can lose. But in order to come to the truth on this classical liberal perspective, you need to have the war. You've got to have the sparring and it can be quite vicious. And you see it in parliament. In parliament, rules are waved around harmony. You, you can behave in say exceptionally nasty things to other parliamentarians and rules are waved around the prosecution of those verbal events. But there's a reason for that. And that is because it might be necessary in order for society to grow generally. Now you might say, well, I'll permit that on my view because society grows generally. But what you said at the end of your last response is very important. Is there another way that you right. could get there? And it just seems to me like that misses the importance of the battle. Even if we could get there another way, it seems like the battle is valuable. And I'm not sure you can really account for that. No, but I mean, for all you've said, you need to say a little bit more about that too, right? So in setting up the case, the thought was the battle is good as a means to the revolution, the revelation of more truth. You didn't suggest really in setting up the case that the battle was good in itself. So what I can say is I've got two parts of harmony. I've got cooperation on the one hand, roughly, and doing what's objectively good for others on the other. And we can't always get those to a, an equal and maximal extent. Sometimes we have to make trade-offs. And so another principle that I'm open to is the thought that the more of one of those elements we can get with the less of a flouting of the other, the more justified the approach. So if I can do a lot of good, if I can meet people's needs to a really great degree, but I can do so only in an un uncooperative way, using some coercion, some deception. So long as that's relatively small and the gain is relatively large, I'm probably not flouting harmony or the person's capacity for it, all things considered. And it can go the other way around too. I mean, if I can do a lot to foster cooperation in society, but can do so only by imposing harm on somebody, well, if the harm is small and the gain to cooperative interaction is great, I think it's within the logic of the theory to say that's not disrespectful, all things considered. And so that's the kind of framework I would want to see whether it can apply to this sort of case. Maybe we would want some nasty things said across the room if it actually clears the air and enables us to make an important political decision. But notice that this view isn't a consequentialist view, it, right? It is, it does involve some trade-offs, but it's not totting it up and looking at just sheer numerical sums, but rather we've got to really have a relatively small infringement of one value and a relatively large gain to the other value for the approach to be justified. And it's not quite consequentialism, even though it might smell of it that way. So one of the things you said earlier was that you should really refrain from insulting people or making fun of them. And it strikes me that court jesters or stand-up comics find their stock and trade in being able to do exactly that. And you're going to be fine with them making fun of immoral dictators. You're going to say, go ahead and mock Vladimir Putin as much as you like. But I wonder if you're going to be okay where someone holds a foolish belief. So... You can imagine homeopaths believe that you can cure various diseases basically by drinking water. People who believe that the earth is flat, people who believe that you could solve South Africa's electricity crisis by tying steel cables to the brooms of flying witches. If someone says, I'm just going to mock those people, 
mercilessly. I think what they believe is ludicrous and foolish. And they're not doing anything immoral in those beliefs, but surely I'm justified in making fun of them. And to say that I've done something disharmonious and wrong by trying to engage in this comedic performance seems like a problem for the theory. That's interesting. So I want to draw a distinction between holding a belief on the one hand and spreading it on the other. It seems very clear to me that spreading false beliefs that you should know is false. There's some moral culpability there. And so I think that does open them up to, to be liable for mocking. Maybe not as much as the dictator, of course, but, but I think it opens the door. I think the, the harder case is whether we have those who aren't spreading these beliefs, but just simply hold the beliefs. On the face of it, I'm more comfortable thinking that it's those who are trying to spread homeopathy or the flat earth view. Really, they should be the targets. But perhaps merely holding the belief is a kind of moral failure if there's enough evidence available to you that you should not hold the belief. And notice that does seem to matter, right? So I think we have two cases again. On the one hand, we've got the flat earther who should know better, has got the information available. On the other hand, we've got the flat earther who doesn't know better. It feels more comfortable to me to mock the first one who should know better than the second who was just simply raised in a very parochial, isolated family and didn't have access to the information. I am inclined to think that would be cruel to mock that person. At least it would be morally worse and more morally suspect than mocking the one who had the opportunity to avoid the false belief. So your intuitions are tracking mine. Maybe that's good enough. How do you deal with the tension between calling this an African ethic when the African ethic contradicts maybe perhaps African traditional practices? So you can imagine in certain traditions that there've been traditions of killing albino children. On your view, that wouldn't be permissible, but that has been the African ethic in practice. So then in what sense is this the African ethic? Yeah. So, I mean, the one thing to say, the first thing to say is there are degrees to which something can be African or not. I don't think it's sort of one or zero. There are degrees of Africanness. I do think there are interpretations of the African tradition that are more African than mine. I willingly accept that. So my interpretation is, for example, quite secular. I don't appeal to God, ancestors, the living dead, the not yet born other kinds of spirits. They just don't feature in my interpretation at all. But I do acknowledge that they have been salient amongst indigenous African people's worldviews for hundreds of years. And a view that would include them would be more African than my interpretation. So my goal isn't to give you the most African ethic or a pure African ethic. It's to draw on the African tradition in a way and with the aim of constructing a philosophy that would appeal not merely to those in Africa, but to a global audience of moral philosophers and professional ethicists, right? Want it to be grounded in African ideas on the one hand, but I want it to be philosophically attractive to a broad audience on another. And so I trade off some Africanness for some plausibility from a certain standpoint. So if that were a widespread tradition, I'm not going to make any empirical claims about it, but if it were, if it had been common in many different societies across the continent for hundreds of years, then it would be substantially African. And my theory would be less African for entailing that it's wrong to kill people with albinism. So I think there's enough 
going for the Africanness of my view otherwise, even though I couldn't account for that intuition, even though I leave out an awful lot of metaphysical agents. But there is debate about that in the literature, and some are very clear that if you're not going to include ancestors in your moral theory, you don't have an African ethic. I think that's too limiting. And I can go pointing to some of the most influential interpretations of the African tradition that don't involve any appeal to ancestors or indeed any other imperceptible agents. And so a lot of times when people make these kinds of claims, they not merely exclude me, but they ended up excluding uncontestable <laughs> facets of the tradition of multiple philosophy.